Sonia. Hi, Margo. What's up? Not too much. What have you been up to? <sighs> Filling out a lot of forms. Ooh, what are the forms for? JP, my husband, and I are trying to procure a dog. <laughs> We're trying to adopt a dog so that uh, for fun and profit. That's very exciting. But the people who have the dogs. Yes. The like shelters and whatnot mm-hmm. have numerous qualifications that you have to meet these huge extensive forms you have to fill out about like how you're going to take care of the dog where the dog's going to be when you're not home like are you, do you take the dog on trips does where is the closest park do you have a fenced in backyard like well, what are other animals um do you regularly keep toxic substances at like dog face level yeah you know normal questions normal stuff people are doing I regularly just leave poison lying around my house, you know, for fun. (laughs) Yeah, but I was sort of wondering, like, when did this kind of start? Because, like, when did people start really... Because I know know that it has not been forever that people have spent this much effort in making sure that dogs are going to homes where people prepared for them i guess yeah i feel like for most of history you got a dog by like your dog had puppies or your neighbor's dog had puppies (laughs) now you have more dogs yeah which is how like i got a dog when i was a kid the the dog appeared from a neighbor's dog had a puppy Um, yeah so so that's what i i looked into this week essentially like when did people start caring about animals as sentient beings that should be protected and cared for and so on like on some level obviously it started when like the first animals were domesticated we started recognizing that these animals are a little different yeah and the first animals that were domesticated were dogs um but it was followed quickly by like uh, farm what we think of as like farm animals like cows chickens goats horses eventually cats were you know as domesticated as they're gonna get but with all of that like new agricultural societies and all of that noise eventually those societies started sort of documenting practices and norms that are clear about like how to treat animals especially those that are going to be slaughtered for food especially and like how you're going to slaughter them so that they're not like suffering or become like tainted through that suffering in some way um and so this is where a lot of those kind of like food rules about like what it's okay to eat what it's okay to wear those kinds of things are kind of quasi like animal protection norms right right but at least for like Western European, Euro-Western societies, the question of whether animals are, like, sentient and have thoughts really comes to the forefront of, like, 17th century. And that's glossing over a lot of thoughts and questions that people had uh, before that. But we're just gonna, we're gonna dive in there as, like, thinking about animals the way that we think about them now really started in the Enlightenment. Um, A bunch of philosophers started freaking out about the idea that maybe humans don't have special souls and that other things can think and feel in a way that is similar to humans. Right. Yeah. The the Enlightenment also, though, like comes with a second big weird prong of stuff, which was that we can learn things not just through divine revelation, but through experimentation and systematized experimentation. Um, and so then all sorts of truly horrifying experiments 
started to be done on animals and people. And one of those things is vivisection, which was particularly popular on animals, but also people that the experimenters might not have necessarily thought of as people. So so that jam kind of continues on um, through the 19th century with um, people being like, is this cat alive and feeling things in the way that maybe I feel things? And then somebody else being like, I don't know, let's cut it open. Look, ethics committees didn't exist yet. You could sort of do whatever you wanted in the name of science, which... <laughs> and, then, and then declare it universal fact. Yes, exactly. By the 19th century, uh, you really have the rise of the progressive movement, right? And the progressive movement is very concerned with all of the weak little beings that cannot defend themselves, like animals and children and women and the poor. Yeah, and- <laughs> credit where it's due. I will, I will give the progressive movement credit where it's due. It was a rough time for I mean, all those groups of people, and I appreciate that they at least sort of wanted to help, and they they did good things sometimes. But yeah, the, so the progressive movement's not like universally great, but they do get really concerned with the welfare of animal and animals, and especially how animals are being treated in hospitals and medical schools and things like that so this is the period when like for example the spca is founded in canada and in 1875 uh the british government sets up the first royal commission on the quote practice of subjecting live animals to experiments for scientific purposes so that's specifically about like vivisection and um one of the researchers at this hearing Emmanuel Klein told the commission that he had, quote, no regard at all for the suffering of animals. Um, The commission recommended a bunch of measures, some that included the bans on experimenting on dogs, cats, horses, donkeys, and mules. Um, Essentially, you know, animals that humans like super regularly interact with and think of as being, you know, man's best friends or whatever. Right. Eventually, in 1876, the Cruelty to Animals Act is instituted, and it's it's not really, like, it doesn't really have a lot of teeth. Like, essentially, you have to bring this super complicated suit against the person who is possibly vivisecting an animal improperly, um, and whether or not anything actually happens to them is, like, a huge up-in-the-air question. Um, and that's sort of, like, the 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 big thing that happens um, until later when we get to our bonkers story for today. So there's essentially the idea that you shouldn't be cruel to animals. And there are a lot of organizations that are being set up against vivisection in particular, but also for like other animal types of animal welfare. And most of these organizations are being led by people who are also involved in other movements, namely the feminist movement. But in opposition to that, right, there's all of the, there's a huge rise in like institutionalized medicine. Um, So as we get into the early 20th century, medical schools are kind of like everywhere. And the idea of medicine as science and as something that you discover through specific kinds of experimentation is the norm. Right. 
think we're getting into like germ theory and all of that. So in the late 19th century, early 20th century, there is a professor of physiology and his brother-in-law, who's I also a professor of physiology at University College London. So that's Ernest Starling and William Bayliss, William Bayliss being the main guy we're going to talk about here. Um, and they were sort of partners in a lab where they were doing a lot of vivisection on dogs to determine whether the nervous system controls pancreatic secretions. Side note, these are the, through these experiments, these guys do discover hormones and start down the path of exactly how hormones work um, because your nervous system doesn't control most of these secretions. But while they're doing all of that, these two Swedish feminists who are living in London at the time, Lizzie Lind F. Hugby and Lisa Schartau, I am so sorry to the entire nation of Sweden for that, um, are, they're like fancy rich ladies um, who are kind of radical feminists, and they are essentially auditing medical classes, med-, med school classes, for about a year. And while they're auditing one of Bayless's demonstrations, he does a vivisection on a spr- small brown dog that is, and Essentially, over the course of three months, this dog is subjected to three vivisections for different purposes. They essentially, like, cut off his pancreatic duct, and then he lives in a cage for two months, and then they bring him out to um, cut open his throat and attach electrodes to his glands or something. And that is the one that the two women, that Lindaf Hagby and Shartau are at. And the professors claim that the dog had been given morphine and that he was under the influence of six fluid ounces of alcohol, chloroform, and ether, also known as ACE, um, that was being like pumped into him from another room into his trachea. Um, but the women claimed that the dog appeared to be conscious and struggling and that they didn't smell the anesthesia or hear the usual hissing sound of the thing that pumps it. So they have this account of what they say is like this really horrible, vivis- particularly horrible vivisection, and they give it to they give this account to Stephen Coleridge, who is a barrister and the secretary of the National Anti-Vivisection Society. He then gives this wild, impassioned speech about how horrible it was and how these women are heroes and all of this stuff, and it ends up in a bunch of papers and becomes like the talk of the town. And William Bayliss um, demands a public apology. When it doesn't come forth, he sues for libel. Right. But the women end up publishing a book that has an account of both this, like, trial of the brown dog and also, like, their other year of witnessing experiments that are happening in medical schools it doesn't seem to their account doesn't seem to help coleridge because he loses the suit um and he has to pay a bunch of damages but immediately following the trial the founder of the world league against vivisection a woman named Anna louise woodward um raises 120 pounds for a memorial to be built um with a bronze statue of the dog and for it to be set up in battersea and the medical students of London lose their minds. Oh, no. They are enraged. 
they are enraged by the plaque and uh, by this plaque there's a plaque that says sort of you know like this is a monument to this particular dog but also to the like thousands of animals that are tortured each year by like the medical profession and all this stuff and they don't do a whole lot for like the first year the school says like the university college says that they're going to like try and figure out whether or not they can take it down eventually the students are just like i don't know overcome with emotion or something <laughs> because in november, in november of 1907 so the undergraduate at the college uh, William Howard Lister leads a group of medical students across the Thames to Battersea Park to attack the statues with crowbars and sledgehammers. Uh, one of them does hit the statue with a hammer and he dents it, um, at which point all 10 of them are arrested by just two police officers. I have a hilarious aside about that, which is that when it's reported in the papers, a local doctor is interviewed and he... <laughs> Uh, by the Southwestern Star, and he says that the fact that all ten of these rowdy students are arrested by just two officers um, signals the utter degradation of the youths. And he says, <laughs> "He says, quote, I can remember a time when it was more than ten policemen could do to take one student. The Anglo-Saxon race is played out." <laughs> You know what? It's comforting to know that the kids these days, kids these days are weak narrative has been going on forever, apparently. Yes, I I really love it. I also love it, especially in the context of like, because we had another episode where you talked about the rowdiness of university students, especially in the Middle Ages and the fact that universities in context, he may be right. Yes, he's absolutely right that no one was stabbed. So like, very chill by comparison, but still, still. <laughs> so, um, but they, the students are not done. So they're fined five pounds by the magistrate, Paul Taylor, and the magistrate tells them that if they come back, they will be jailed. This then triggered another protest. So two days later, medical students from the college, from King's, and then uh, from a couple of hospitals march across the strand toward King's College, waving miniature brown dogs on Aww. a stick and a life-size and a life-size effigy of the magistrate um, singing, let's hang Paul Taylor on a sour apple tree as we go marching on. Fantastic. Um, apparently, according to the Times... <laughs> The students tried to light the effigy. Uh, to, they tried to burn it, but they couldn't get it to light. So instead, they threw it into the Thames. You know what? I take it back. They were incompetent and bad at being rowdy students. We should make fun of them. They but uh they go on and on essentially there's like multiple riots the big one um being where they like invade king's college and throw stuff at the like magistrate's office and try to burn an effigy of him and get involved with uh some suffragettes um while waving little dogs on sticks at them and so and this goes on for like two years right so then in march of 1910 eventually the battersea council is like we can't anymore and under the cover of darkness they send out some workers um who are who are guarded by 120 police officers jesus christ to remove the statue this 
The statue was then melted down by a blacksmith. And before it could be melted down, the anti-vivisectionist release sent them a petition uh, with 20,000 signatures saying, like, do not do this. And, but they they do they bur- they they melt it down the statue was no more in um though eventually a new anti vivisection group erected a new statue in 1985 that also is not without controversy again from the medical community but then also from within the anti vivisectionist movement who said that this new dog looked too much like a pet and didn't like reflect the defiant stand against society that the old one did you can see pictures of both of these statues online because again the second statue was also taken down because it was causing so much hubbub and frankly violence in the parks yeah so there were full-on at least three full riots as a result of this brown dog statue and this brown dog being vivisected um but honestly in doing this research it really despite like the amount of stuff that i had to fill out in order to get the dog that I still haven't gotten yet. Um, I've been approved, but whatever. Um, this practice really hasn't stopped. Theoretically, the animals are treated more humanely because, like you said, there are ethics committees and whatnot. But in 2020, um, over 5 million animals uh, were subjected to like scientific tests on their bodies of some sort. Right. Um, so, like, that's essentially, like, now. This is the, like, most up-to-date. And the list that we have of the animals that were tested on um, are broken down essentially in a level of how, like, painful or invasive they might be. So the last level of this um, is called, quote, it's like section E. So quote procedures, which cause severe pain near at or above the tolerance threshold of unanesthetized conscious animals. This, these are procedures where they might be using muscle relaxants or paralytic drugs, um, or some sort of like topical analgesia but not like they're not fully anesthetized so that's procedures that are causing severe pain near at or above the pain tolerance threshold of a conscious animal um without like real anesthesia and that's ninety four thousand animals in 2020 were subjected to were subjected to testing of that level Um, so right we can read this and and hear about these stories and about like these women who are crusading to not have this dog who seemingly might yeah. have been conscious but certainly wasn't anesthetized to like modern standards uh having its throat cut open and it's uh like trachea and stuff electrocuted but like stuff at that level is happening to animals today in the name of experiment and science um i don't know how to feel about a lot of animal testing um some things you know like i think that we wouldn't have a lot of the medicines that we do now uh but we definitely don't need to do it for cosmetics and things like that so there's i think it's definitely a complicated a complicated situation but i 
would think that it would be difficult, at least for me personally, to justify an experiment that causes pain above the threshold for a conscious animal without some sort of anesthesia. Yeah. Like, I don't know what you would be looking don't for like there. That. Right? Um, yeah. So it's just, um, I think this is definitely something that people should be like more conscious of when we talk about things like, you know, I mean, especially with uh, situations surrounding, I think, cosmetics in particular, um, or things that aren't necessary to yeah. keep humans and animals alive. Um, we should be conscious about like the the literal physical impact to other beings that our choices might be making, um, because this is these are things that are still going on. Well, thanks for taking a break with me, Margo. And yeah, hopefully, yeah, you get a dog soon. Yeah, maybe next time. Maybe, probably not next time, but maybe next, ne- maybe soon, I'll be introducing my Aww. dog on. We'll definitely put it on the Instagram. If I get a dog, it's going on the Instagram. So, there. Excellent. And let's hope that animal testing keeps, you know, becoming more regulated over time and things get better. Yeah. So thanks for taking a break with Bobby Yaga. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.